Thank you very much, Ruth. Um, some of you will have spotted my creative spelling of creativity, for which I, which I apologise. <laughs> Understanding creativity, how do, we, how do we do it? I want to start, I mean, it's a big question, obviously. I want to start by, um, with two small experiments. Now, these experiments will be brief and painless, for which you'll all be glad, because it's you, the audience, I want to experiment on. Um, so, for the first experiment, if you could take an object of some kind, doesn't really matter what it is, so I've got a pen, and put it in front of you in some way. Um, I'll give you a minute to get, get prepared for the experiment. And then, if you, with your object, if you reach out um, as if to grasp the object, but just before you make contact with the object, if you stop and look at what your hand has done, so your hand will have taken on, or will be starting to take on, the shape of the object itself. So I've got a pen here. Um, I could equally have a glass, and my hand would, would reach out and would be shaped by the glass. I'll, I'll come back to the, the possible significance of this experiment in a second. But for the, the, the second experiment, for those of you who are sitting near to somebody else, could you shake that person's hand. <laughs> so here we are. We've done, two, we've done two different things with our hands now. One is to grasp an inanimate object. And the inanimate objects, obviously we make objects. So someone made the pen, the glass, the whatever. But equally, and this is one of the key things I want to put across, to, to quite a profound degree, objects make us. So we have the intention to reach out towards the object, but the form of the object shapes our hand and, and is part of the relationship that we have. And if you think of, of um, going to a formal meal or something like that, and all the, all the different shapes that your hands can take on without you even thinking about it, so one of the themes that I'm going to talk about is the, is the relationship between people and objects and the fact that objects aren't as passive in that relationship as we might think. And then shaking hands. Shaking hands is a, a more obviously social act and again requires um, quite considerable skills actually. It's not, a, it's not something that any other species could do. Um, it's something we entirely take for granted, shaking hands with other people, but there's a lot of, of minor sort of adjustment of your, your musculature to actually enable you to shake hands, and, and you unconsciously um, shape your hand to the size of, of somebody else's hand, and you can learn a lot about another person just from shaking hands, the firmness of the grip, the ways in which people um, adjust themselves to each other, particularly if they're standing up. So shaking hands is, a, again, a, a very everyday, sort of low-level sort of thing. But it's, it's a thing through which a lot of information is imparted about a social relationship. And we take on that information without ever thinking about it, or often not particularly consciously thinking about it. So, so my starting point in thinking about creativity is the fact that all human beings have a whole range of low-level skills. They're, they're skills that we deploy every day without 
really any conscious thought or very much conscious thought. But, but they're actually highly skilled and they enable us to combine with the material world in, in very profound ways, but they also enable us to socialise with each other in, in very profound ways. So, so bringing the two experiments together, I would also say that, that people, we're profoundly social beings, um, but we socialise through the medium of things, of material culture. And it's very hard to think what our social lives would look like without a whole range of objects that, imp you know, clothes, cars, who knows quite what, that, that, are, that are functional things. They're there to keep us warm or, or cool or whatever. Um, but also, they're, they're social things. And, and, and a key thing about being human is that we live in two dimensions at once. We're very social, but we're also profoundly material. We're not the only species that have technologies. So here's a chimpanzee with an anvil stone and a, a, a rock in the other hand, and, and what this chimp is doing is cracking open nuts to, to eat, the, eat the nuts. And chimps can do a variety of different things. They can strip um, little twigs off a stick and dip that stick into a termite mound and, and eat the termites from the stick. So, and, and there are other... The, the, the New Caledonian crow... Um, there's somebody here in Oxford who, who um, spends their life looking at, at um, crows and their ability to do various things. And crows can do things like, if there's a bit of food in a, a narrow-necked bottle and they have um, a, a piece of wire, they can use their beaks to shape that wire to push it down the, the neck of the bottle and, and hook the piece of food out. And apparently there, was, there were two crows that this um, chap was particularly experimenting on, a male one and a female one. And the female one did all the work. She, she, <laughs> she hooked, the, hooked the, the wire, got the food out, um, and just at the moment where she was about to enjoy the food, the male one would swoop down and grab the food. And, and raising questions about you know, the nature of, of um, the relationship, intelligence, and all of those sorts of things except that one day, apparently, the male crow was found dead. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> we don't... Of causes, of causes unknown. So, so my point is, my point is, we're not the only species to have technologies, um, but we are the only species that use technologies to socialise with. So, so chimpanzees have quite complex social lives, but those social lives are all to do with fighting, grooming, and sex. They don't actually use material things, with the minor exception of food sharing. They don't use material things to socialise. So, so we're, we're profoundly unusual, and, and in ways that we take so you know, deeply for granted, we're, we, we don't really think about it. People, as I say, um, form material culture, form things, but those things form them. So this slide gives you some... What, what those little blue squiggles are are the ways in which um, neural pathways are laid down in the brain from the point at which we're born to being an adult. So obviously, through the process of socialisation, our brains learn to connect up in various different ways and, and provide us with the intelligence that we have. Um, and, and there are you know, millions of little synapses going off all the time in our brains. Uh, but those synapses which, which exist in the brain are triggered by the body. 
So we are, we, in this case, the body is, you know, the, uh, the hand is reaching out, and this shows you, I won't go into the details of this, this shows you a bit about the sort of speed at which things happen um, when the hand reaches out and grasps things. Whoops, just went too far. Um, and, and our bodies have um, notions of space, near space, far space, social space, um, but by putting together the, 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 the things that I was talking about and, and um, these, the, the, the neurological side of things, if, if um, our bodies are influenced by objects um, and in turn our bodies influence our brains, then the objects that we make and use influence the ways in which our brains develop or the particular pathways that are laid down in the brain. So that if we lived in a different culture, a culture without pens, let's say, culture that didn't write, then that would have implications for the ways in which we grow up and the ways in which we act in the world and understand the world. So, so one of the things that I'm interested in is to try and develop an holistic model of material things, the body and the brain, and it's these things that are in interaction with each other that, that form the people that we are. And then, of course, through those things, we interact with each other. So, so what we take to be internal, the working of the brain, is actually has a whole series of external dimensions as well through our, our use of, of objects in various ways. I'm not... I'm a humble archaeologist, so I don't really know very much about brains, although, like many people, I'm interested in them. But what I have grasped from reading um, various forms of literature on the brain is that um, it's becoming obvious how uh, malleable and plastic the human brain is. There's a wonderful study of um, London cabbies. Now, as you all know, London cabbies, in order to practice their trade, have to uh, assimilate what's known as the knowledge, the, the, the route maps of, of um, all the streets of London so they can navigate around. The hippocampus, which you can see the, 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 a small bit in the, the base of the, the, the central section of the brain, the hippocampus is the bit of the brain that is to do with spatial awareness. Now, London cabbies' hippocampi are, on average, probably bigger than yours and mine. And that's because they, they practice their trade through spatial awareness. I mean, and there may well be, it will be interesting to find out later on, there may well be other people in this audience who have similar, similar sets of, of skills and capacities. So, so the brain, our brains are different. And our brains are different due to the things that we do during our lives. I went to a popular lecture on the brain once, and the woman giving the lecture said, if you took a series of brains out of, of people's heads, um, they would be recognisably different in their sizes and shapes, even to the lay person. So the brain, in a sense, is a bit like a muscle, and, and, and if we exercise various parts of it, they get bigger, and if we, exercise, you know, we don't exercise other parts, they don't particularly grow. So again, this, this contributes to the sense that I'm trying to cultivate of, of the, the whole person, the, the brain, the body, and the, the external things that we do. As an archaeologist, I'm interested in the history of human creativity um, and the history of people's relationships with material culture. 
And, and for a lot of the human past, I mean, the human past keeps getting longer and longer as new ancestors are found and, and new tools, are, uh, newly old tools are found, if you see what I mean. Um, but for a lot of human history, all we have are things like tools. We don't have any written language, and maybe for the early, early periods, um, our human ancestors didn't have language. That's, a, that's an area of debate. So, so the, one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in objects is you know, that's, that's because I have to be. Um, and these are some of the older objects, not, not the oldest objects, um, a series of, of what are known as hand axes, very beautiful objects, um, which are designed to be held in the hands. Um, they lasted for around a million years, more or less unchanged. Um, they, were, they were functional objects, um, but you can also see, hopefully, that they have two planes of symmetry. They have left-right symmetry, so, so in this case the left and the right of the, of the, um, the hand axe are, are pretty well the same. And this is a side view, and they also have back-front symmetry. So one thing that one might think about early human history is that people were living such a hand-to-mouth existence that all they had was, you know, all they, all they could manage to do was create functional objects and that they wouldn't worry about things like aesthetics. Now, we can see from these early products that, that these, were, these were obviously extremely functional objects. People used them to butcher animals, to, to cut up wood, to do a whole range of different things. But also, as well as the function, they have quite an aesthetic sense to them, and, and an aesthetic sense that, that you know, they, they don't need to have in order to perform their function. So, so that, again, to, to me, says that, that human beings operate uh, in a material world that has to provide the necessities of life. But even from an early stage, um, people's technology was doing more than that. Whoops, keeps uh, keeps jumping, was doing more than that and, and was, was sending out a series of messages about, about um, form and, and, um, and shape and those sorts of things. This, this slide is just to show you that um, these are slightly different stone tools, uh, just to show you the sheer complexity of, of making stone tools. So even at an early period, again, if you think about um, the... The, the skills of the hand, even to make stone tools uh, at an early period, these early hominids, which weren't quite like us, physically speaking, would have had considerable manual skills. I mean, speaking personally, I couldn't produce any of these stone tools. If I tried, I'd get a, a fairly lumpy bit of rock, which certainly wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be aesthetically pleasing. One of the things that I'm interested in at the moment is a much later period of human history, um, this is the period from about 400 BC, 2,400 years ago, um, through to the early Roman period, about 100 AD in Britain. Um, and this is a body of material known as Celtic art. So again, I'm interested in um, how material culture creates and, and um, gives value to various different sets of human relationships. The object that you can see here is a mirror, or the back of a mirror. It's probably, it's quite hard to date this stuff exactly, it's probably about 300 BC, 2,300 years ago. Um, nice handle, cast handle, and it's, uh, it's made of, of um, bronze, of a combination of, of copper and tin and lead. 
So there's quite a lot of skilled metallurgy that's gone into making this thing. This, as I say, is the back. If you, if you could see the other side, that was the, that was the mirror bit, and it was polished metal, which was all people had back then. Um, and it probably wasn't, again, we're not quite sure what these things were used for. It probably wasn't a mirror in the sense that, you know, people used it to shave or, or put their makeup on. It may well have been used for divination and those sorts of things, that people were, were looking at reflections and trying to, to access different aspects of the world. Um, the back bit, as you can see, is heavily decorated um, with inscribed and, and hammered decoration, uh, basically on a circular pattern. And again, this... this Coincidentally, like the hand axe, this has left-right symmetry. But if you look on the left and the right, these, the, the, the details are slightly varied uh, on each side. Um, and archaeologists debate a lot uh, about these sorts of things, whether, whether these are purely abstract decorations or whether, let's say, we can see these as a pair of human eyes and some sort of face up here, whether there might be some sort of more figurative aspect to it. Um, without going into a great deal of detail, and I could, believe me, so you're, you're lucky, um, uh, we would see that this period of the Iron Age as being a period of quite unstable sets of social relationships. There doesn't seem to be any very definite social hierarchy. There may well have been some people who are slightly more important than others, but, but these things weren't very fixed. And we would see the ambiguity, the complexity and ambiguity of this decoration as, as being part of a social world where people were constantly negotiating with each other as to who did what, who had precedence in various different situations. So the fact that these things are ambiguous is deliberate um, rather than accidental and was part of this, part of people negotiating um, various different relationships and meanings. And one could imagine um, there was storytelling and various things around these very complex objects which, which um, interpreted them at, at, at a sort of you know, a temporary level and then they could be reinterpreted again. There are a whole range of wonderful things. If you go to the British Museum, a lot of these things are, are on display. These are a, a group of, of um, gold and silver necklaces from a place in Norfolk called Snettisham. Um, and the very yellow ones are made of pretty pure gold, and the, and the less yellow ones are made from a combination of, of gold and silver, known as electrum. Um, and this one, for instance, uh, the so-called grotesque talk. Talk is... is um, it, well, talk comes from a, a Latin word to do with, with twist, you know, the, the sort of talk we... We, uh, we use today, the, the term we use today. The, this one, the, the grotesque talk, had about eight um, kilos of gold in it. So there was a lot of, lot of gold. Um, a lot of skill went into making these things, uh, both in producing the wires for the, the, the body of it, and then these terminals here, which were produced in sheet gold, and, and then they were pressed out from the inside to give this three-dimensional um, three-dimensional sense. And you'll be able to see, as I mentioned, there are different colours. There are whole, there are lots and lots, there are uh, probably about a hundred talks found in, in Snettisham. And they're all in little pits, holes in the ground. And they're often ordered in colour um, order. So the, the yellowest ones are at the bottom uh, and the least yellow ones are at the top. 
So again, people are, are, are dealing with a whole series of aesthetics here. Uh, these, these are about, uh, well, probably from about 300 BC through to about uh, 100 BC or, or maybe slightly later. Um, we did get some radiocarbon dates through. Tom, who, uh, those of you who were at the previous lecture, Tom helped us date these things for, probably for the, the first time. So, so again, these were things that were, they were either worn by individuals as individual um, things that people owned as individuals, or they may have been markers of office of some sort. And again, people seem to have been negotiating a whole range of different, um, different relationships. And there was a lot of skill in making these things, but equally there was a lot of skill in appreciating the complexity of the colour, the form, and the decoration. This is perhaps the most famous um, item of, of um, Celtic art. This is the so-called Battersea Shield, so-called because it came out of the river, the Thames in, in Battersea in 1854. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's, it's not very big, it's not really a functional shield, and it's very thin. And again, it's made by, the decoration is made by so-called repousse decoration, pressing out um, of the decoration from the back. Um, and again, there is some sort of broad symmetry to these things, but once you start looking, there is a lot of variety. And again, one could interpret it possibly as, as um, a face with some sort of moustache, or it may be more sort of abstract decorations. And, and, and this thing, because it was so small, was either for a child, or an adult hand, it does have a handle on the back, an adult hand couldn't actually hold it, or maybe it was a shield in a more sort of notional sense. It was to shield people from malign powers, and, and in which case maybe the decoration was, was there as, as part of that sort of protective aspect. Um, we tend to make a separation between you know, sort of pure function and decoration. People of the past probably didn't. This is a sword, the hilt of a sword from Yorkshire, a um, place called Kirkburn. It came out of a, uh, came out of a grave, uh, again about 300 BC. Had had a um, wonderful red glass enamel in the, in the handle, and this is the scabbard here with, with quite considerable um, decoration on the, on the surface. Oh, sorry about that. Um, this is... What this shows you is, well, it doesn't really show you, <laughs> would show you if you could see it, um, is, is the complexity of the sword. This is a sort of exploded version of the sword um, with, with the scabbard and the sword itself. And what it's supposed to demonstrate is, that, is the complexity of making these things. Um, if we go back, the sword is made of lots and lots of different materials. There's bronze and iron there's the red glass. In the interior of the handle, um, there is horn, which we tried to date by radiocarbon dating here in the lab. Um, it didn't work for whatever reason. So in order to produce this thing, there's, there's a lot of skill and a lot of different skills needed. But also, in order to appreciate these things, um, you need a lot of skills of discrimination because there is a lot of intricacy of the decoration in all these objects. And, and you need to learn to read them in various different ways. And the more you see of them, the more you appreciate um, what they are and, and, uh, and their variability. This is, 
This is one of the great texts of, uh, of Iron Age uh, life is, is Asterix the Gaul, of course, and this is, uh, this is the druid Getafix um, brewing up a bit of uh, magic potion. And just to make the point that um, the technologies that, that we're looking at here, again, there are, there are functional skills, but probably people employed a whole range of other skills. They would have invoked cosmological powers in different ways. And, and Smith's um, historically and historically in Europe and in other cultures around the world were often associated with um, And if you think about bronze, bronze is quite magical in the sense that you can take a solid, you can make it into a liquid through the application of heat, cast it, and put it back into a solid again. You can't, well, people couldn't do that with iron back then. They couldn't cast iron in the Iron Age because they couldn't get the temperatures. Um, but, but that whole process of, of solid to liquid to solid is quite an amazing thing. And again, it is not something that one could generally accomplish in, in everyday life. Celtic art, this is the last thing I'll say about Celtic art. Celtic art has a life into the Roman period and, and shows definite forms of creativity. This is a, this is a brooch. Um, the front plate of a brooch, quite a large one, about that sort of size. And it's known as a dragon-esque brooch because there's this sort of sinuous nature to the, this little creature. I mean, it may look a bit like a seahorse, actually, but, but um, some of them look more like dragons than this one. These are interesting because they're first produced about 70 AD in the north of England and the south of Scotland. As the Roman army was marching north, and, and bringing that area of, of Britain into the empire, people started producing new objects um, which draw upon much older ways of doing things. So you'll remember back to the Kirkburn sword, there's that red enamel in the sword, which is much older, um, almost 400 years older than this. So, so in producing this, people are drawing on much older technologies. Um, but also they're using a, a, a new Romanly introduced metal, brass, which has zinc in it, um, which makes the metal a little bit more um, ductile. And, and it, 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 the, these things are combining a, a, an old way of doing things with a new way of doing things. And they, they can be read, again, we can't be certain, but they can be read as the assertion of an identity, a Celtic identity, an older Iron Age identity, in the face of the Roman incursion, um, and a way that people are incorporating older ways of doing things into a new world. Um, I won't go on too long about this. I've just been to China, and I've, I'm fascinated by China. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I was saying before about the nature of the materials that we make and use is that they're culturally different, and they're culturally sensitive. Um, somebody was saying to, to us about the Chinese is that, um, is that uh, there is no sense in which accent in China is a marker of social rank. So people, the leaders of the country can have very pronounced regional accents, so pronounced that people from other regions can't really understand them. So, so in, con in contrast to Britain, where accent is extremely important, in China it's in totally irrelevant. What, what is a marker of social rank is calligraphy. And they said as soon as someone writes a single character, you know which, which stratum of society they come from. Whereas in Britain, 
Um, our handwriting, speaking personally, someone who's got awful handwriting, our handwriting is, is much less a marker of where we come from and who we are, but accent is everything. And, and the Chinese have a very different attitude to material culture, which is one of the, to, to, to the, the one we have in the West. Um, they produced, even at times of the past, back in the Bronze Age, um, 1,000 BC, 3,000 years ago, they produced vessels, these are bronze vessels, of sophistication way beyond anything that, um, that, that Europe could produce at the time, and produced them in, in large numbers and sets. These are uh, ritual vessels at the top and bells in, in various sizes and therefore various tones um, down at the bottom here. What the Chinese put less emphasis on was, was buildings. They built mainly in wood rather than in stone. And they had a whole series of, of rather sort of kit-like um, attitudes to building, which probably starts a long time ago, back in the, the Neolithic, and, and, and goes through pretty well into historic periods. Whereas in Europe, and this is a horrible generalization, and, I, and you know, I'd be happy if you challenge me on it later, um, in Europe, people have put more effort, by and large, into producing permanent monuments, um, things that last, buildings that last. This is a Neolithic tomb from Scotland. Um, this is Augustus's, the first emperor of Rome's mausoleum, which bears some resemblance to the Neolithic tomb, and again, there's a, a story there which I won't go into now. And then this is, this is a reconstruction of, of the centre of Rome um, as Augustus rebuilt it at about the turn of the millennia. So, so the point that I'm making is that, that, that two different cultural forms, um, the European on the one hand and the Chinese on the other, put emphasis on different aspects of, of material things, therefore different aspects of creativity and different aspects of human relationships. Here at Keeble, we are um, setting up a number of, of research clusters, um, and the one that I'm interested in and in charge of um, is a, a cluster to do with, with the nature of creativity. One of the reasons we're, we're putting together research clusters is to make use of the obvious facet of, of Oxbridge colleges, which is that they are interdisciplinary communities. In any college... Um, even s relatively small ones, then there are people from a whole range of different disciplinary backgrounds who know each other and talk to each other on a regular basis. To tackle a big issue like creativity, then obviously you need a whole range of different disciplinary perspectives. So from my point of view and, and deriving from what I've been talking about so far, you need people who know about the human body, the mechanics of the human body, how it works, how the brain works, how to understand body and brain together. You need occasionally people like me who understand a bit more about the material world and the links with the body, and then people who are more um, particularly concerned with social relations, how societies operate in, in the present and the recent past. And, and to bring all these different things together uh, allows you then to start thinking about large issues like creativity in a much more rounded way. This is a shot of the University Museum, which is over there. 
um, about 1860, was, which was when it set up. Interestingly, if the camera, if you swung the camera around a bit and took another shot, um, you wouldn't see Keeble because at that stage, of course, it wasn't there. So, so the University Museum was all on its own, sometimes known as the University Mu the, the Museum in the Parks, which is a nice, nice sort of image. None of the science buildings were there, um, Rhodes House, nothing else. It was all on its own. The interesting thing about the University Museum, um, and again, I'm sorry this has come out a bit muddy. We've, we've let now to 1909. Um, this is the central court. I'm sure many of you, most of you, have been into the University Museum. This is the central court of the museum. Um, and it was set up by Ruskin and others, um, a, a, a surgeon called Ackland, amongst other people, um, to be a centre for emerging science within Oxford. Prior to 1860, um, there was quite a lot of scientific um, work going on, but uh, most of it was within the colleges. And, and what... Um, um, this group was trying to do was to bring together science in an holistic way um, and the, the court here of the museum was, was um, the point at which the various different endeavours so this, these were the anatomists over here, um, the mineralogists various different people uh, they were to meet within the court and exchange views exchange insights, exchange um, views of what they were doing and, and the, the great thing about the 19th century, I think, from the point of view of the 20th and 21st, was this was a pre-disciplinary world. The disciplines that we've come to, come to recognise didn't really exist in the form that they did now, and it was therefore a more holistic way of doing things. Um, we, can't, we can't and shouldn't go back to that earlier world, but it's interesting to take a bit of inspiration from the 19th century and think what a 21st century interdisciplinary world would, would look like. On the back of um, the, the original museum, this bit is the Pitt Rivers Museum, which, as Ruth said, I, I worked in for quite a long time. Here he is, uh, General Pitt Rivers. I won't say anything about him. This is, this is the museum in about 1910, um, so much the same sort of time as, the, as the, uh, the, the plan I just showed you of the museum as a whole. Um, the museum was part of this broad... It, it, it entered the broader university museum, Pitt Rivers Museum, entered the broader university museum as part of the anatomy department, which seems quite extraordinary to us. But it was conceived of with, within a Darwinian framework. And, and the Pitt Rivers Museum, as I'm sure you all know, was, was displayed typologically. Um, actually, this, this case here is a, a bunch of pottery from Cyprus, so that wasn't typological. It was, it was regional. But most of the cases were, were different aspects of human life. Um, and what Pitt Rivers and, and, and people in the museum subsequently were interested in was how people in different areas of, of the world, in different periods, wrestled with the key aspects of life and death and, and, and sociability uh, and were interested in looking at um, incremental changes in material culture so here we see a group of harpoons and so on on the upper gallery. Um, this is probably a little bit earlier. This is probably the 1890s. But these sorts of typological displays. So harpoons from different areas of the world. Um, and, and people, so Pitt Rivers and others were looking at how people solved similar 
problems in slightly different ways. And one could see a museum like the Pitt Rivers as, as being a documentation of the nature of human creativity, which was embedded within this larger um, museum structure and was attempting to um, understand the world in, in various different ways, in, in much more holistic ways. And the people in the museum not just studied um, the, the objects, they also tried to make them. Um, E.B. Tyler, who was one of the first um, curators of, of the University Museum and the Pitt Rivers Museum, famously had a very long beard, um, and he used to demonstrate the fire drill. This is a, you have a piece of wood with, with um, a, a piece of a thong around it, and you rotate the piece of wood backwards and forwards and drill it into another piece of wood until the friction creates a spark. And he once set his beard on fire, <laughs> demonstrating the fire drill, which people were amazed by because usually he couldn't get it to work at all. Um, so so, so these, these objects were, were not just passive objects. People were trying to use them in various different ways to understand the nature of creativity. That's very much what we're trying to do here in Keeble at the moment. We're trying to bring together a, 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 a range of different disciplines to bear on this large problem and to set up various different um, conversations and forms of work. I mean, there's lots, there's lots we could do. I'm, I'm interested in the nature of networks at the moment. Um, and again, we can say more about this in, in questions because there is more to be said. Um, the French mathematician Henri Poincaré who, who was around at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, about, about this sort of time, he, he thought for a mathematician there were different levels and, and phases of creativity. He said to, to one of his major contributions was to develop a new set of formulae to look at, at, at various geometrical shapes. And he said he, at first he applied himself to the problem by thinking about it consciously, got really frustrated, didn't get anywhere very much, went on holiday to the seaside, and one day walking along the clifftop, an idea came to him, and suddenly he, it started to crystallise as to what he was trying to do. Then he went back again and had to do quite a lot of, of, of hard conscious work to, to take that inspiration and form it into, into a series of formulae that were regular and worked. So what I'm interested in from that um, example is, is the fact that our brains work um, even when we're not thinking about things, if you see what I mean. So, so, so Poincaré had planted in his mind the, the, the you know, problem of how to solve the, the sets of, of geometrical equations. And, and somehow, while he was walking on the clifftop and eating his ice cream and doing whatever he was doing on holiday, his brain was making a series of connections which then came up with the, then came up with the answer. Uh, so I think there's a sort of parallelism there between the ways in which our brains work, but also the networks that we set up between each other when we sit down and converse and talk about things, experiment, do various different things. And one could see networks of people and objects on the one hand and neuronal networks on the other, which give rise to, to the incredible uh, richness of, of human creativity. One of the things that we're trying to do is not just to study creativity, but to create the conditions in which creativity occurs. Um, so we're just starting in our endeavours. Um, we will let you know how, how things go. 
and we welcome any ideas and, and forms of participation. Thank you very much indeed.